We're going to start in Romans chapter 2 and verse 12 before we get there, before I begin reading. Uh, just a, a couple minutes this morning uh, by way of introduction. Last week, we started a sermon series titled The Intro to Christianity Series. And there are two major things that I want to accomplish with this particular sermon series. One, I want to lay down the clear foundation of our Christian faith. Why we need to be saved, how we're saved, and what faith looks like after we're saved. And there's not a better book than the book of Romans to systematically teach that, what that looks like. And so my goal is for those of you that are maybe new to the faith and have never actually heard this foundation for the faith that you have, my goal is to teach you that. The second objective is to teach us how to study the Bible. That's one of the things a lot of people are just not real familiar with. And um, I was somewhat surprised at the um, support last week at the end of the sermon or people that reached out to me this week. A lot of excitement about this series. And uh, a lot of people that have, some have been saved for 30, 40 years, some of them more recently. Uh, but I was contacted by a handful of people this week, and uh, all with a lot of excitement, saying very excited about the sermon series for one reason or another. And so um, I was encouraged to hear that. One of the things to be looking for, if you have our app downloaded, a notification will come out later this week saying, hey, notes are updated. And what you're going to find is I want those of you that are real interested, those of you that communicated with me, hey, I'm interested in this. I'm really excited to learn how to read the Bible for myself. This set of notes in the app is going to be updated for you. I'm going to put in uh, some of my personal tips on how I study. And then I'm going to have a couple of resources that are free, links that you can um, go to and find what are called commentaries, good commentaries on the Word of God. I'm a huge believer, if you really want to study well and you want to know the Word of God well, I'm a big believer in having two or three commentaries that you use as you study the Scripture. If you don't know what a commentary is, it is nothing more than a pastor commenting on the Bible. And uh, they're so important to study. Uh, every now and then, very small group of people. I run into a handful of people that are like, oh, don't use commentaries, just read the Bible. Uh, to me, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, what I do every morning is literally, I read the Bible and then I comment on it. And that's what you're here for, is my commentary on the Bible. And uh, a commentary is nothing more than taking that transcript and putting it into print so that people can read it later. It's very helpful. And it's good to have two or three different commentaries so that you can have a couple different angles from any given pastor that you're, that you're using as your commentary source. And what you want to do as you're reading over the next couple weeks, I want to encourage you guys to read like two chapters ahead, all right, each week, two chapters ahead, and study it yourself. Read the chapters first, try to read it in like a, a section like I taught you last week. Read the chapters first, see, see how you see it, read one or two of the commentaries and see if you pick up anything out of them, and then show up and listen to me teach on it. And you might find that as you're studying, you're getting 
of what I was going to be delivering anyways, and you'll start to build that confidence like, whoa, I can do this myself, which is the whole goal of this, is teaching people how to study the Word of God yourself. So I'm very excited about that. With that said, we're about to start part two in verse 12, and I want to give you the helicopter view, which is probably one of the most important views of the Scripture, is understanding the big picture. So far, if you weren't here last week, here's what we learned in 60 seconds. I'll do it in 30. Here's what we learned in 30 seconds. We learned that all the people in the world that don't follow God, they're still without excuse. Nature itself testifies to God and His goodness. They have consciences that bear witness against them, and so they're without excuse. But then we also learned that the church-going folks are without excuse too, because they know what this thing says, and they still don't do it, and we're all in trouble. That's all we learned so far. That's the first point that is being made in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, and we pick up right there in verse 12 of chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here's what that means. There are two basic groups of people in human history. Those who reject God's law and those who embrace God's law. And those who reject God's law, who don't believe in this, it says they're still going to be judged, even though they don't believe in the law. And those who do believe in God's law, they're going to be judged by God's law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's important to understand that. It's a good thing that you showed up this morning to hear, but hearing does not make us right with God. All that hearing can do is tell us what we need to do. It is our response to what we hear that God judges us by. And so I commend you for being here this morning. I commend you for sitting there and listening and hearing the Word of God taught. But it is not the hearers that are justified. In other words, you don't get some bonus point with God just because you showed up to listen. You must take what you hear and do it. Verse 14, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I'm going to read the next uh, paragraph and then come back and comment on both. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, we've got two paragraphs there that deal with two people groups. The Gentiles and the Jews. As we study the book of Romans, there are some important um, titles of people groups to understand. 
The Gentiles is a big word that refers to anybody and everybody that was not a Jewish follower of the Old Testament law. And so it's a really big word that encompasses everybody else other than the Jews. Gentiles could literally mean the people of the world. And then when we read about the Jews, sometimes you, the word Jew is used. Now in the book of Romans, the word Hebrew I don't think is ever used. But the word Jew, the word Hebrew, and the word circumcision, which I will comment on that in a little bit, the word circumcision, all three of those are titles to refer to the people group of God-following Jews. And so um, we have contrasted so far in chapter 1 last week, we have the Gentiles and how they answer to God. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, we have the Jews and how they're going to have to answer to God. And we see that they're both in trouble. That same theme is going on right now. We have a paragraph about the, Jew, the Gentiles and how ultimately they're going to answer to God. And then we have a paragraph about the Jews. So let's look at the Gentiles. It says that these Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. That does not mean that you know, the Gentiles or people of the world, non-Christians, it doesn't mean that they keep the law perfectly. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that even people who reject the Bible still have the law of God written on their heart. This is why, even in any culture that you look at, there are certain lines that people believe are morally wrong. You don't murder. You don't rape and pillage. You don't steal from your neighbor. You don't have to be a believer in the law, even though God's law tells us not to do those things. You don't have to believe this to believe that those things are wrong. And it teaches us something about mankind, that as God's creation, God printed His law upon our hearts. And we see here in this text that we read that the conscience of the unbeliever, the conscience of the worldly person is ultimately going to condemn them when it all comes down in the end. There's an interesting verse here that says, uh, verse 15, it says that their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts, listen to this, accuse or even excuse them. This is an interesting verse. And I'm going to tell you my commentary on it. This is what I believe about the verse. I'm willing to acknowledge I might be wrong about this. But I'm going to tell you what I believe about it. I believe that this verse lends credibility to the possibility that someone in a very rare scenario who has never heard about the one true God, who has never heard the gospel, but has truly followed the dictates of their conscience, I believe this verse teaches us that their conscience could excuse them when they face God. The general principle being this, that God holds us, holds us accountable for what we know. Now, I would argue it's an extremely small group of people. Every one of us here, before we came to know the Lord, we had a conscience, and we still do have a conscience. And I doubt there's one person that would raise their hand up and say, listen, before I knew about the Lord Jesus, my whole life, any time that my conscience told me not to do something, I always followed it. There's probably not one person here who can testify to that. 
I know that my conscience, many times in my life, I knew things were wrong, and I did them anyways. And my conscience, according to the word here, would have bore witness against me had I had to stand before God before I got saved. That said, it does tell us. It uses the word or excuse. So, I think it leaves room for that. Whoever, you know, have you ever been asked, well, what about that indigenous people that live out in the middle of nowhere that have never had a missionary come and have never heard the Bible and have never heard about the Lord Jesus? What, what does God do with them? I think the Bible teaches us that God judges them according to the knowledge that they do have. And I think the Bible also teaches us that generally the extreme majority, major, major, major majority of those people are still going to have big trouble on their hands. Because they, just like us, even though they had a conscience, still didn't follow their conscience. And ultimately, that's what it's trying to teach us here. But then it pivots to that next paragraph, to the Jew. That being the person who knows this. And Paul uses some real, Paul is the author of Romans. He uses some real sarcastic statements to talk about us. He says, oh, you who boast in God, you who look down on everyone else, you great instructors of the law, you who are so sure of yourself that you're a guide to the blind, that you bring light to the darkness, you're an instructor to all the fools out there. You teach everybody how they ought to live, but you don't live it that way yourself. And so don't think that somehow you're going to end up right with God either. He goes on to say, for it is written that the name of God's blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So the Bible does teach us that the people of the world who reject God, they often blaspheme God because of the hypocrisy in the church. It's been going on for a long time. It's not new. And let's just, I'll just let's be honest, they have a point. They have a point that people should not claim to be Christ followers if they're not following Christ. That people should not be standing on a stage saying, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit fraud, whatever, when they're doing those very things themselves. And that God is blasphemed because of that. It does matter how we live. But let me say something very clear. That will not be a free pass for you. If that is you and you're like, well, I don't really serve God because I know too many people who say they do and they're hypocrites, that's not going to be a free pass for you when you stand before God. Imagine the stupidity of that argument on your actual judgment day when you're facing God and it's like, God, I stole because he did. And he goes to church. God, I was a liar because I know this Christian, he was a liar. Like, what does that have to do with God? That's going to, I don't think, honestly, I, I don't think you'll even get those words out of your mouth when you actually face God. Uh, I, I don't think, I just don't think you'd even be able to get it out of your lips. But those who think that you will, it is such a stupid argument that somehow because people in the church are hypocrites and they've turned their back on God, that you're going to join them and you're going to turn your back on God too. It is so stupid. But we see it does happen. And it happens because there are some who think they're so righteous and they don't even follow the very things they're trying to tell everyone else to do. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what are we talking about here when we use the term circumcision? The Jewish people, their entire existence can be traced back to Abraham. They call him Father Abraham for that reason. And God appeared to Abraham before his name was even Abraham. God changed his name. His name was Abram. God appeared to Abram and told Abram, I'm going to do something great in your life, and I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and told Abram to get up and leave where he was and head towards a land that God would show him later. Talk about faith. Get all your stuff and just start going that direction, and I'll show you where you're supposed to go later. And Abram trusted God and believed God and followed God. Later, as a sign of Abraham's commitment to God, God said, Abram, this is going to be the sign that separates your people from the rest of the world. All the males are going to be circumcised. Now, this was a, this, so this was a sign of the Jewish people initially. And it separated them from the rest of the world. It was a physical mark that was meant to be a sign of something that took place inwardly. And, you know, why circumcision? This is a funny way to say it. But you are literally cutting away the flesh of the most sensitive part of a man. And it is a sign that God's followers are not people who are led by the flesh, but we are led by the Spirit. And we trust God when God tells us the flesh must be cut off. It's a sign. That's what circumcision initially was. It was the sign. And it separated God's people from the rest of the world. And so sometimes they were called the, the circumcision. It was a term that referenced all of them. Even women who were, who were part of the Jewish people were still considered under that banner of people of the circumcision. And what he's saying here is, listen, folks. That is good, and it was what God has called your people to do, but if just because you're part of that group, if you're not following him, you're not really part of that group. The sign in and of itself doesn't do you any good if the real thing hasn't happened. You know, a good example of that, like a physical example that you and I would have this morning, is baptism. Baptism in and of itself doesn't save a person. It's not like just a couple minutes ago when these people hit the water, we witnessed them get saved in that minute. That's not true. They are already saved. And their sins have been washed away. And the old man has been laid down and a new man has come to life. And this was a sign to show us that. The point being that somebody could, in theory, do that 20 times and never really have changed their heart. And that it would be better for someone to actually have changed their heart and sincerely started following the Lord and not been baptized yet than for someone to just be baptized but not following the Lord. He's saying the same thing here about circumcision. The, the, the people of the world, the Gentiles who don't embrace or who hadn't embraced the covenant or the sign of circumcision, he says if they're following the law of God, 
then they're part of the group. And those of you who say you're following the Word of you know, God because you're going through all these ceremonies, if you're not actually following Him, you're not part of the group. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. So then what advantage has the Jew? That's a good question. Well, so if, if, if it doesn't, you know, if simply being a Christian, if simply having your name on the roll, if simply being born into a Christian home, if simply being a Jew doesn't save you, then what does it matter? Is there any advantage of being one at all? Much. Or in what value is there of circumcision? The answer is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the Word of God came through them. Now what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So back to the hypocrite argument. So what if some of these Jews, people who claim to be followers of God... So what if they're hypocrites? Does that mean God was unfaithful? No. He has been faithful even though His people at times have not been. As it is written that you may be justified in your works and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I want you to understand the argument here. He said, okay, so, we were unrighteous, and God was righteous anyways, and so that really highlighted how righteous God is. Right? We were enemies of God. We were sinners. We knew what we should do, and we didn't do it, and yet God was still good to us, and God was still faithful and so that even highlights how good God is. And so if it highlights God's faithfulness when I'm unfaithful, then I should just be super unfaithful. That way God's always highlighted. It's a stupid argument. Paul says, by no means. It's actually a really strong way the way Paul says it. It's almost like a thousand times no, 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 a thousand times. No, no, no. It's a very strong wording here of, no, that's not how this works. Verse 6, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? So he builds upon that argument and says, there's people who have accused us of saying that because God is good and righteous, even though we fail, that we should go on and fail, and we should keep on sinning, and we should keep living our wicked ways, because then God's righteousness is just lifted up even higher. He said, people have slanderously accused us of that. It is wrong when we think or teach or believe or live in such a way where we sin on purpose and then we blame God for it and try to say that somehow my evil living brings glory and honor to God because it just shows how much more righteous He is than me. Paul says, absolutely not. 
We have been slandered accordingly. It's absolutely false. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Here's the answer. No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay. He says this applies to all of us. The Gentile or the Greek is another term for the same group of people. The Jew, the circumcision, same two terms for the same group of people. He says it doesn't matter who they are, all the people in the world, there's none that's righteous. There's no one that's got it right all the time. One thing I want to point out about this passage of Scripture that's important to know. When you read that quote, you would assume that you're just reading a quote from the Old Testament, like Psalm 59 verses 1 through 5 or something. You're not. Not only does Paul not tell us where these verses are, this is a jumbling of a bunch of verses smashed together. In the verses that we just read between verses 11 and 18, we're actually dealing with seven different passages of Scripture. We've got Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, Psalm chapter 5 and verse 9, Psalm 140 and verse 3, Psalm 10 and verse 7, sort of, Isaiah 59 verses 7 through 8, and Psalm 36 and verse 1. They're all just mashed together. And he doesn't take the time to tell us where they are. And if you want to go back and study it later today, you'll find it's not even word for word. Some of it kind of is, and some of it is not even close. And yet, it is written and quoted as Scripture. Here's the important point. It's more important to know what the Word of God says than to be able to always know exactly where it's at. I'm not saying it's not important to know where it's at. What I'm saying is it's more important to simply know what the Word of God says. Because it's true whether you know where it's at or not. And knowing where it's at is far more important. It's a lot easier for us in our day and time with the Scriptures, which have in later years, the Scriptures have been written in a way, or um, not written, but organized in a way with chapters and verses where we can remember where it's at. But in the old times, everything was like on scrolls, basically, or parchment paper. And so you literally have to read it and just memorize it. And so later, when you go to quoting it, you're just you're quoting things that you remember from what you read or heard read. And it's just, you know, a lot of people get hung up on like, well, I can't remember verses and I can't, I can't tell you where it's at. There's nothing wrong with continuing to work on that. But what's far more important is you know the Word of God. You might not be able to quote that... Um, 
Philippians 1.6 says that I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will accomplish it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might not know that that was Philippians 1.6, but you need to know that when God has started something in your life and you feel like the devil's trying to tear it down, you need to know this verse, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in me is going to finish it. And now I can go to that verse and I can know that the word of God is telling me that whatever God started in my life, the same one who started it, he's going to finish it. And I could have a sense of confidence that God's going to do what God started in my life. That's more important than being able to tell me exactly where it's at. And this is a great set of verses here that show us that even Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the dude who knew the Old Testament law better than anybody else, this guy He's got like seven verses all mumbled together, and they're all relative to the same thought that he's trying to communicate. He doesn't go out of his way to say, this one's here, and this one's here, and this one's here. He just tells us the Word of God. Let's move. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We here learn something very important about the law. It was never meant to save us. The law was meant to show us where we were wrong. That was the purpose of it. It was meant to teach us that we are sinners, but it doesn't save us. Nobody can keep the law perfectly, and so when we study the law, each of us eventually find out guilty, guilty, guilty and guilty, extra guilty, 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 That's all that the law can teach us, that we are guilty before God. Now, before I move to the next big words, but now, let's look at the big picture of what we've read. Keep in mind, if we eliminated my commentary and you are just studying the letter of Romans, we could have read chapter 1 and chapter 2 to this point in about 10 minutes of time. And so the big theme communicated in 10 minutes of time Gentiles are guilty, Jews are guilty, Gentiles have the word of God written in their hearts anyways, they know, and they're a law unto themselves, and they're going to be judged accordingly. The Jews, the God-fearing folks, they're really in even bigger trouble, because not only is the law written into their hearts like everyone else in humanity, they have the written law of the word of the Bible, and they still don't do what it says. And so we're all guilty, there's not one that's not. We've built up the problem. And the letter transitions now to the entire theme moving now to salvation. So now that we've clarified the problem, what is the answer? And we see that as we transition in verse 21, but now. Thank God, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested, which means made known, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth or put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Let's stop there. That is a huge statement, and now what's going to happen is Paul's going to take that statement and really expand on it over the next few weeks. And so as we study this, we're going to take that statement and we're going to expand on it. But he, here's, here's what he does. He's a good writer. 
He really builds up. We're all in trouble. And he doesn't just say it. I mean, he proves it, right? He proves it. He says the same thing repeatedly through different lenses and proves it. We're all guilty. So now what? And he gives us the answer in an incredibly deep statement. And then he's going to take the next several sections of his letter and expand. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the statement. He says, but now, so something's changed. But now we've come to see that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the word righteousness with God. What righteousness with God means is to be in right standing with God. And so as a sinner, as a lawbreaker, I'm not right with God. How can I become right with Him? Well, through the law, there's no way. There's not any way to fix what I've done wrong. And so the answer, this is how we come into right standing with God, is through faith in Jesus Christ. And he explains that Jesus was put forth as the propitiation, that's a big word, for our sins. The propitiation means atonement. Atonement is also a big word. What it means in common English is that Jesus paid for all the laws that you have broken. That when you looked at how guilty you were, guilty, 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 double guilty, and there had to be a payment made, the payment for everything that you did wrong, Jesus did by taking the death penalty for you and dying for you. And we are told that right standing with God, it comes through faith. Faith in Jesus, that means faith in who he was and faith in what he did. He died, he shed his blood as an atonement, or propitiation is the word used here, for your sin. And so one of the most foundational truths of our Christian faith is that we are never made right with God by the things we do. We are never made right with God because of the works that we do. We are only right with God because of Jesus. And so that's what it means to put our faith in Him. We trust in Him, and we trust that the work that He did on the cross was sufficient to pay my bill, to wipe my slate clean, and so I can now have righteousness and stand in right standing with God because of what Jesus did. Foundational truth to Christianity, and you'll never find peace about your right standing with God until you learn that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read on. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that means is that God is the just and the justifier. First of all, God is just in forgiving us, of our sin, forgiving us of our sins because God did not just take your sins and sweep them under the carpet. He is a just God. And He had to make sure that there had to be a payment for what you and I have done. And so He is just in forgiving us because Jesus died so that He could. At the same time, it was His idea, so He's the justifier. 
It was his idea. It was his plan. He's the one who justifies us. He's the one who declares us righteous. And in doing it, he, he maintains his justice and his integrity and his character because Jesus died so that we could have our, our sins forgiven. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. But by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So verse 28 teaches us that our works can never make us right with God. It's another important uh, foundational truth to Christianity. There is no amount of work you can do that makes you right with God. The only way that we are ever in right standing with God is because of the blood of Jesus. That's it. True Christian works will follow when we have turned our life to the Lord. But our works don't save us. God doesn't somehow look at you sitting here this morning and that gets credited as a work. And your Bible study tomorrow, check, work. And you serve on this mission or that mission, check, work. And you, you know, donate to something or pay your tithe, check, work. God doesn't take all of your work and say, okay, we're going to put that on the scale with the blood of Jesus and eventually you'll be righteous. None of your works have anything to do with your righteousness before God. That said, this doesn't mean we shouldn't work. It doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a life of gratitude that follows. So let's read on. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So he asked that question, if works don't matter, if we're all saved by faith, then do we just take the law and kick it in the garbage? No, by no means. He uses the word, the same uh, set of words here that means a thousand times no. No. Well, if I'm not going to be justified by being faithful to my wife, then why not just commit adultery? That is so stupid. It's evil. It's wicked. And really, it is the heart of a person who has never truly surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not saved by keeping the law. But we don't throw it in the trash either. When God has said we ought to live a certain way, we ought to live a certain way. When God has said we ought not do something, we ought not do something. And is it true that being obedient to those commands don't save us? Yes, it's true. But that is not some excuse to not follow the Lord. It's insanity. We are saved only by grace through faith. It is a complete work of God. But when we are truly saved and we recognize that I was an enemy of God and God loved me enough to save me and transform my life, when I truly recognize that, the last thing I'm going to want to do is trample on His grace. I should have a desire to honor Him in my living. Chapter 4, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was not counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well to, and to him and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, very wordy uh, paragraph there. Here's what is telling us simply. The reason it appeals to Abraham is this. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. So God appears to Abraham, says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, plural. But he was specifically the father through the promised child Isaac of the Jewish nation as a whole. And so they looked at Abraham as the greatest, I mean, he was the start of it. That's why they call him Father Abraham. And here's the point that's being made. So when it all started with you guys, was Father Abraham righteous because of his works? Was it because he followed through with the sign of circumcision? Did he become righteous when they did the circumcision thing? No. The Bible says that he believed God by faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the sign of the covenant that God made with him, it didn't come until after he had been made righteous through faith. And so the point being this, true faith and true righteousness has always been a matter of the heart of believing God and being willing to obey God. That from day one, even with Abraham, it was never about the sign, it was never about the covenant, the, 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 it was never about the sign of the covenant, it was about the covenant itself and a, a heart of faith that believed God and was willing to obey God. And when Abraham believed God and was willing to obey God, it was credited to him as righteousness before he had ever did anything to prove it. This is what we're being told that the same and, and the Therefore, people have always been saved the same way. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, the Jewish people, Gentiles. We have always and only and always will be and only will be saved by faith in God. Believing God, taking God at His word, and that faith is proved. You want to prove that faith is real 
by the light that follows. The, the circumcision that uh, Abraham and the rest of the nation had to follow through with, it was a proof that these guys believe what God said. But that act in and of itself is not what saved them. It was faith. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. But the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, plural, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, speaking of Abraham, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And why did he believe that? Because God told him so. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. I'm going to read five more verses and I'm done reading this morning. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, but because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right. A couple final thoughts here. He says, Abraham, who was the father of our faith, he begins to expand upon that. He tells the story of Abraham, like when Abraham was 100 years old, God showed up to him again and said, the promise that I made you about 25 years ago is going to happen. And it says that at that point, Abraham believed God, and he did. But I want you to note something that's not put here in the Scripture for us. You've got to go back into Genesis and read it. It was almost 25 years before that promise came to pass. And during that 25 years, there was time that Abraham's faith wavered. Abraham was not a perfect man. Abraham made some really bad decisions over the course of 25 years. But it says, as we read in our text, his faith grew strong. It teaches us something about our faith. It's meant to grow. And it's meant to grow stronger. And that it's often through the process of following God 
that we, we come up against things that test our faith, and sometimes we fall and we've got to get back up. But as we go through test after test after test, our faith grows stronger. This is the goal. And so you can't beat yourself up if you're a fairly new Christian and your faith is kind of weak and you're finding yourself stumbling. Welcome to Christianity. This, this is the story of Christianity, and this is the story of following God, and it's right here in the book for all of us to see. It's true with all, every one of God's servants, and even the great father of the faith, Abraham, took him 25 years to grow in faith to the point that we're studying about today. It took time. But it was faith in God that ultimately was credited to him as righteousness. And we see that we now have some some um, what I would call understanding of what that faith is ultimately in. It's in Jesus, it says, who has delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We've been justified. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close this morning with some comments, not necessarily on the text. I'm going to use the text, but some comments on how to study the Bible. In the last two weeks, I've spoke as fast as I can speak without being so fast you couldn't understand me. And I have provided commentary on four full chapters of Romans in two sermons, about 45-minute sermons apiece. We have covered every verse. I didn't skip a single verse. Two weeks. And when we look at those four chapters and the first five verses of chapter five, which I read, here's what we see. The whole world's guilty before God. Even the Jews had no excuse because, quite frankly, they knew and they still live the same way they shouldn't have. So we're all in trouble. We all need a Savior. And we are ultimately saved by faith. And if you take a good look at the Old Testament, it was always that way. Even Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was saved by faith. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law. Nobody was ever saved by being perfect. Nobody was ever saved by tipping the scales of being a good guy. It's always been by faith in God, and when God sees that someone truly believes Him and takes Him at His word and is willing to follow Him, God credits that as righteousness to that person. It's always been. And so it is today. But now we understand where our faith is placed and why God is just in forgiving us. Because He did not just forgive us. He sent His Son who died in your place. And so the death penalty for all that you have ever done wrong has been paid on your behalf. And so God is just when He looks at you and I and says, I'm going to credit righteousness to this person because all the wrong that He has ever done has been paid for through the blood of Jesus. And so we now have peace with God because of the blood of Jesus. Now, that is the, 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 the whole big point of the first four and a half chapters of Romans. And when we think about studying the Word of God, what are the chances you would have picked that up if you just did a holy flip to Romans 2.14 and started reading? And then you read two verses and you stopped 
and really tried to figure out what do these two verses mean. It'd take you forever to arrive at this conclusion. And it's important to understand the Word of God, generally speaking, was not meant to be read that way. It's meant to be read like this, where you see it in chunks, when you realize that the author is trying to write a point, and it takes a little bit of time to get that point out. It might take a chapter or two. And so I want to study it with a sense of, of, of plowing through the letter without just stopping at every little thing that's sort of like tripping me up. You can see how there are certain things that might get somebody hung up. Like all of a sudden, you, you hit this statement about the circumcision and the uncircumcision, and you're like, whoa, what does that mean? This is where having a good commentary would come in very helpful to be able to open it up, get some clarification on who's being talked about, and now we move on and we keep reading because none of us would agree that the author's hope was that we would get to that little paragraph and just stop there for two days. His goal is that we see the big thing. And so far what we see is Jesus is the answer. In the next couple of weeks, we begin to dig into what does that mean? So we're told today, we are introduced today to the statement that we're saved by faith. What does that even mean, like really? What does faith mean? So we have faith in Jesus. What does that mean? I've touched on one of the things we have faith in is his payment for our sins, the things we've done. But next week we'll see God deals with our sins, the things we've done through the blood of Jesus. It's a very specific thing that Jesus did for us. He shed his blood as our atonement. In the weeks that follow, we, we begin to progress into not just getting saved, but Christian living. And we're going to study and find out, and this is one of the most important parts of this section for new Christians, we're going to find out that once you get saved, soon and very soon there is a horrible discovery that the reason that you committed all those sins is because there's a sin nature inside of you. That's why you did it. And we see that the blood deals with our sins, the things we did, but how does God deal with who I am? the old me. And we find out with a great deal of explanation that's also through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we look at, we progress to, once we overcome the old nature, what it means to walk in the spirit as a spiritual man, as a spiritual woman. This is where we're headed. I want to reiterate um, that I'm going to go good. Chris, why don't you guys come? Let's close with the song of this service. I just close this out in prayer for the last one. But I want to reiterate the goal for those of you that are very interested in learning to study for the Bible for yourself, to be looking for the notification that's going to come out here in the next couple days with some study helps. And I want to encourage you, read chapter 5, 6, and 7. Study chapter 5, 6, and 7 on your own. Read a couple of the commentaries that I'm going to throw at you to use for the free resources. And try to figure out for yourself, what is the major theme that's being taught to and come show up next week and see see how you did.